Louise Gluck once said, We look at the world once in childhood, the rest is memory. Milan Kundera said the struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. And how about this? There are three things that slip as we age. Legs, eyes, and, oh shit, what was that last one? (laughs) I'm Lynn Miller. And I'm John Modaff. And this is The Unruly Muse. Our theme is memory. And that conjures all sorts of sayings, such as... My mind's a blank. You couldn't have forgotten that. Memory is a myth. You have spousal selective memory syndrome. Not in a million years did I do that. I vaguely recall... Lost it. What was that? The railroad was our Playing on the sidings, you and I As the engines rolled by, billowing fire On and on, wailing their train songs day and night Then our own way down that ribbon of steel we learned new songs and we crossed new fields now we pass like two trains in the middle of the night we just roll on we roll The railroad and the trains are such a metaphor for life. We just, it's yes. like past, present, future. We're just heading on through. Most of the time, the tracks just sit there. Nothing happens much. And then this monster rolls by. Right. And it's really impressive. And to a kid, especially. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that because as a kid, when I would see the trains go by, I always would think of the future. I would think, oh, where is it going? Or I'd like to be on that. Or where would I like to go? Tell us a little bit about how the train metaphor connects to memory for you. Well, I just have very strong impressions as a child of hearing it and in a way fearing it. But I was very accustomed to the sounds of it. And when I moved away from Lyle uh, in northern Illinois, which is near Chicago, Mm -hmm. uh, I really noticed the absence of the trains. And so this gap is there, and it's really persistent. You don't ever forget it. It's one of those senses and one of those things that sets off a set of volumes of memory. Well, I think sounds do absolutely key our memory. And of course, smells, as Proust pointed out, way long ago. Also really key memory. Do you think that when people lose their sense of smell for whatever reason, their memory is affected? Well, that's a great question. And I wonder if that's not true, because I do know there's research about hearing loss being the worst sense to lose, because it connects us to other people and to communication. Mm -hmm. But I wonder about smell, because that would cut off so many sense memories. What smell sets off is not a story 
or, uh, you know, a tall tale even, or uh, even anything linguistic. It's something else that gets stirred up. Right. It's it's like a body jolt sometimes, a smell. And, and it puts you there in a very visceral way. It's not intellectual, mental. I think it is emotional. It's time travel. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you liked the song. And, you know, I'm a big fan of trains. Mm-hmm. And I, we've got to work trains into our themes either on the periphery or in the middle a couple <laughs> more times because I'm not completely out of train songs yet. Good, good. We look forward to more train songs. Well, let's move into another aspect of memory with our first poem, All That Is Made by Sarah Cochin, whom we have performed before on the show. Sarah has a new book coming out from the UNM Press in the next, I think it's about a year away. This particular poem was just published in ABQ Imprint number six, which just came out. So how was this poem brought about? She says, All that is made arose from a story told to me by a friend who witnessed the raising of her special neighborhood hazelnut grove to make way for something deemed more productive. She continues, It made me think of how the value of places and other living organisms is not in the currency of business, but in the abundant gift of nurture, playfulness, and wonder that our living world gives us for free. Often we may not realize our deep connection to place until it is gone. As Julian of Norwich said, any small piece of the world represents all of the living world. All That Is Made by Sarah Cochin The orchard by my house is gone. Trees were diseased, the farmer said. Did not provide a good return. The grove did not belong to me. That is to say, I did not own it. Just love's small coinage. Laughter. Cool shade in summer. Hide and seek with children. A A hallowed hallowed place. place. For solace. Filigrees of shadow. Filtered light. Julian of Norwich held the hazelnut in her open hand, asked the divine, What may this be? Heard a whisper, All All that that is is made. It took a day to raise the trees. Nine more to turn five acres into ash. I I gaze gaze at at orchard's shade. shade. Now a stubbled field. Hold hazel memories in the heart's bare palm. Thank you so much for this poem, Sarah. It's a wonderful description and evocation of memory. That which is no longer there will constantly make the speaker think of the beauty of that grove. Right, her grove. It has nothing to do with real estate mm-hmm. or land contracts. It's, uh, it was her grove because of what happened there and what she remembered from it. Well, and it's so true that something like this orchard that one enjoys so much and maybe sits under those trees and reads or just dreams, at one time you would see that orchard and you would be flooded with memories of comfort there. But now that it's been cut down, the remains are constantly giving you two signals. One is what you used to feel and then the shame of its loss. Yes, and she does express that sad feature of living and recollecting. She does it so skillfully to be optimistic and yet realistic at the same time. And those last four lines are what we have divided into four lines for performance, but that last thought 
that uh, despite what she's gazing at is a stubbled field, which is even kind of an ugly phrase when you think about it. She almost makes some kind of synesthetic sketch of a stubbled field with the sounds of those awful words. And it's even worse because of what used to stand there. But then what does she have, what she's left with? And this is the optimistic part, but it's tempered expertly. She says, hold hazel memories, which is a beautiful phrase and just yes. about as far phonologically as you can get from stubbled field. Yeah, and that works beautifully. A novice would stop there, I think, but she uh, has to acknowledge, I guess, or chooses to express the other sad side of it by just briefly calling her palm bare. So well, and what's beautiful is the phrase is, in my heart's bare palm. Mm-hmm. And we usually think when we refer to heart as being full, but it's my heart's bare palm. Right. And, and that word bare is doing double duty. It's describing the opposite of a full heart, but also an empty hand. And That's right. So it's, there is so much packed poetically into those last lines that evokes one of the functions of memory, which is when something is taken away, it's there for us as a leaving, a gift in a way. What we can remember of it is what we have and what all there is to have. Yes, and here we have the gift of it, and then we have the sorrow of losing it. One other thing she said is, how do we honor our deep sorrow about what is vanishing all around us? And I would say that by writing a poem like this is one way to honor it. Well, it's beautifully done, and we sure thank you. You have prepared for us today a wonderful short story. Do you remember what it's called? It's actually called Remember. And this is the kind of story, I think we can just jump in with the story, and we'll talk about it afterwards, that came about because of you and I choosing our topic for this time as memory, and then this story just decided I'm popping out. So this is a premiere. This is a premiere. All right. Welcome, folks. Remember, a short story by Lynn C. Miller. The radio announcer, Jack Patricio, adjusted his headphones. He smiled reassuringly at the petite, gray-haired woman sitting with him in the booth. Okay, say something, he said. But you haven't asked me anything yet. Just checking the sound levels. We don't want our listeners to miss one word of this interview. I know a lot of people want to hear from you. Okay, mumble, mumble. Mm -hmm. Jack fiddled with a few knobs. Good. Good. I think we've zeroed right in. You're loud and clear. Okay, we'll start now. Ready? She nodded and propped one red sneakered foot on the other knee. Welcome to Around the World with Jack. Today we have a really special guest, all the way from Los Angeles, brilliant author of speculative fiction and poetry, Mimi Gestalt. Mimi, I can't tell you how excited I am to be actually interviewing you. I've been reading your books for at least 25 years. You might be dating yourself there, Jack. Oh, well, you don't know when I began to read, do you? Just kidding, Mimi. No matter what age you are, folks, Ms. Gestalt's books will take you to worlds you never imagined. Thank you, Jack. That's good to hear. This world is a little tired, so I'm happy to provide a little escape for the weary. That's very philanthropic of you. Okay, I think most people know you're the author of ten novels, three books of poetry, and a memoir, but they may not have heard of your new book, so let's start there. Give them the title, Mimi. I don't remember. (laughs) Such a sense of humor, folks. But I get that. I really do. Do you ever put down your toothbrush and wonder if you've used it or you're just getting ready to use it? Well, so I understand. What's the new title? That is the title, Jack. I don't remember. Oh, very good. You almost had me there, Mimi. Well, that's intriguing. Mimi leaned forward in her chair. 
The more dismal and disturbing and chaotic life is on this planet, the more people will have to use their memories as gatekeepers. How, in times like these, can we live with what we're experiencing? Denial, which is the same as not remembering, seems rampant, no? (laughs) Excuse me, Mimi. Gosh, you'd think I was allergic to memory. Maybe that's what you're saying. But all kidding aside, this is some heavy topic you're tackling here. Not exactly light reading, the kind after you've fed the cat for the third time and locked all the doors, you want to settle down, lying in bed before snoozing off. I didn't write this one for the faint of heart. Now, I know that phrase, faint of heart, is a cliché, but like all clichés, we use it because it's true. Memory, lapses of memory, deep memories, short memories, unforgettable memories, memories we bury because they torture us to remember, is at the core of what makes us cognitive beings. If we have no memory, we have no relationships. We can't build on what has gone before. If we can't think about civilization, we can't have progress. Civilization as we know it will stand still. Jack fumbled with his mic. He was silent for a minute. Uh, yes, you have a point. Well, a lot of points. Uh, gosh, I just got the meaning of your last name. Gestalt. That's deep, too. Uh, isn't that where we try to find the whole picture, like in a dream? There is a mode of therapy called Gestalt, and certainly in that therapeutic process, the dreamer is encouraged to think of everything in the dream. People, objects, actions, as a part of the dreamer. So even though you may dream about your mother in an old house, in interpreting the dream, she and the house represent parts of you. The gestalt of the dream, then, is perceiving the totality of the meanings from the dreamer's point of view. Ah, so let me, as a therapist friend is always saying, try to tease this out here. Are these meanings hidden until the dream brings them into view? You could think of the gestalt of the dream as discerning the key that unlocks a door, I suppose. The door then opens, revealing a unified whole from the parts. It's very present, rather than digging into the past to find causes or blame. Yeah, that sounds kind of hopeful, Mimi. So I have to ask, did you take this name to give a kind of present energy to what you write to signal that your writing will take readers on a journey that has immediate meaning for them? That's very good, Jack. Jack grinned. I certainly hope that my books have meaning for each reader, that my stories lead the reader to discover truths or insights that increase their understanding in this present, very fraught moment that we live in. And your name, Mimi. Did you choose that name? One corner of Mimi's mouth twitched. I don't remember. What? Oh, no, that's too funny. You almost got me there. Jack dabbed his forehead with a tissue. Okay, we're getting a little far afield here. This is, of course, my fault for asking you about your name. Please tell us more about this new book with the intriguing title. We've touched on memory, Jack. In the world of the book, people catalog their memories, sort of like a giant file cabinet. Once they place a frame around a memory... They are free to leave it behind, but each person possesses the key, a password if you like, so that they can re-access a certain memory. But what if they lose the key or the password? They could lose huge parts of what makes their life special. Yes, Jack. That's why the phrase, I don't remember, can be chilling, and why two of the most powerful words we can say are, I remember... Thank you, Lynn. 
Some very interesting questions about memory are brought up there. And your character, the author, she avers that we can, for the most part, control access to our own memories. Have you found that generally to be true in your own experience? Well, I guess I was thinking in this season about denial and how people do selectively remember. I mean, that's the only way I guess we can survive as humans. We can't possibly remember everything that happens to us or everything we think. So we showcase certain memories in our narrative about our lives. Do we tend to them and keep some alive and let others wither? Is this a purposeful thing? I think that if you have the disease of forgetting dementia, you don't maybe have a lot of control. On the other hand, in daily life, we do kind of feed the flames of certain memories. So you ask two people, gosh, how did you meet? Well, they usually have a story that they've agreed upon about how they met. So they've nurtured that memory. But what about forgetting? Does it have some good functions, actually? Well, I think forgetting is the essential shadow of memory. On the one hand, forgetting allows more room for other memories, perhaps. Children forget trauma often, and later in life it comes up unexpectedly to many people. They remember things that happened to them, and they're just horrified, and then they kind of go off the deep end for a while. Mm -hmm. So it can be protective. I don't know which is the shadow of the other. Is forgetting the shadow of memory or is memory the shadow of forgetting? <laughs> yeah. Memory is this looming, ominous, almost godlike aspect in that it provides so much. But the other is this shadow of doom that comes with memory. And maybe doom's the wrong word. There's this, this creepy shadow lurking that says something can come out of this space and you can never know what it's going to be, right? And it could be something yeah. that happened to you that you forgot, but it could also be something that didn't happen to you that you now remember as if it did. That's how complicated exactly. it can get. All you have to do is gather with your siblings about the past and what one person remembers and everyone else forgot or two people remember or they remember it differently. I mean, it's fascinating how our lives and perspectives shape how we remember or don't remember. I was thinking about the Holocaust and that phrase, always remember. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the old adage that we're doomed to repeat history if we don't remember it. Right. They're meaningful, and if they just fade away, then where are we? Yes, and one of the great battles in education and textbook selection and all of it is what is worth remembering and passing on and what can be trimmed. And that battle yeah. rages, and as that battle rages, I think it slows up the sharing of what might prove to be fundamental, at least those aspects of history where things broke down so that maybe people could spot the signs. Yeah, and it, it, it's that thing about how if you don't have a champion, you won't be remembered. There's all of this excavation now of people and many women, many people of color, uh, many people who were maybe radical or rebels or they didn't fit in, to excavate, to reestablish them in our memories. I guess it's distressing for someone who's, say, over 30 to hear someone who's teaching, say, middle school and is asked, what do you teach in history? And they say, we don't. We teach social studies. And so, by the way, teacher, uh, when was the Declaration of Independence signed? Right. And they say, oh, 17-something. Mm -hmm. And on one hand, you think, all right, is that just pedantry? Does it really matter? Is it enough just to know it was the 18th century? 
or does the year really matter, or what does the absence of the knowledge of that year signal about memory in general of the era? Right. I mean, I think it's essential because if we hadn't had the American Revolution that started in 1776, we wouldn't have had the French Revolution, which started in the 1780s. That was a causal event. And there were many seismic jolts. And you certainly see that like the Arab Spring years ago. Uprisings promote other uprisings. Hope promotes hope. Depression promotes depression. Right. So, I think that we have to have those who hold the key to history to remind us, where did we come from? Because that's where we're going. Well, I hope you're wrong about that. In fact, don't we Don't we usually <laughs> hope against the general rule when it comes to progressing? Uh, and uh, Yes, we wish that. We wish to progress. <laughs> that's right. And speaking of hopeful and ever hopeful, a cat always trusts that the owner will feed the cat. I hear the scratches right now. We better take the feed the cat break. Yes, the grand tradition. Let's sit on a park bench in the rain for a bit. You've been listening to The Unruly Muse. John, I I really like the break music that you composed. I feel the reflections in the rain and the water, and it's very dreamy, this piece. It's one of those things, like we were talking about fragrance earlier, the sound of rain and thunder on water, a small body of water, there can't be waves, has just that evocation for me. And it was the source of the song. I wrote the music, and then I added the weather, so I kept the weather in mind. And in fact, we'll see in our second song today that that's an effect that can be expressed musically in a number of ways. The mind will fill in the rest. <laughs> 
I hope our listeners today play that over and over again when they wish to simply recall or remember or meditate on what is important or what has happened to them. Very, very um, evocative. Well, I think that your composition takes us into our second poem by Julie Williams, who we have performed once before. Because she evokes in her poem, There's Another Story, a very powerful memory that she absolutely wants to remember. Yes. What does she say about the origins of this poem? This poem comes from her novel in poems, Escaping Tornado Season, which came out a number of years ago, which is in many ways, she says, autobiographical, while also being a work of fiction. So perhaps it's no surprise that in the writing of it, as the main character's grief begins to settle, she remembers her role in the sacredness her father brought to the supper table. There's another story I tell myself so I won't forget, by Julie Williams. How on Fridays, Daddy'd come home from the river early. Lather up at the kitchen sink. Wash dirt and grease from hands and arms and face. With lava soap, then head to the bathroom. To take a shower with it. Coming with me, sweet pea? He'd ask once he was squeaky clean. And we would get in his 57 Ford. And go downtown to the store. Pick out steaks, big, thick sirloins. Mushrooms, green onions. Ripe, juicy tomatoes, corn on the cob. And from Safeway's freezer... A gallon of Neapolitan ice cream. At home, Mom would be baking bread. Three dozen sour cream sugar cookies. And two blueberry pies. I'd set the table while Mom mashed potatoes. Sliced tomatoes, fried onions, and mushrooms. Around steaks sizzling in her huge cast iron pan. At the table, Daddy and I ate. While Mom talked about her day. When my brother Tuck was alive, he was rewarded for his ready smile. But now, I was rewarded for chewing and swallowing a steak. The size of Nebraska. Complete with all the trimmings. Look at that little girl eat. My father would holler. She eats just like a man. And we'd tuck into that big meal. All tight and warm, full as a family. I play it over and over in my head. So I won't forget, but at the same time. I'm trying hard not to remember it as... The The last last supper supper we we ever ever had had together. together. Well, that is such a vivid memory. Thank you, Julie. Oh, what's that knot you can't can't escape from? Is it the Gordian knot? Yes, the Gordian knot. Goodness. Got a little Gordian knot going here at the end with it. I play it over and over in my head, so I won't forget. Okay, and at the same time, and this. It's a miracle we can go through a day without falling down, isn't it? At the same, <laughs> honestly, at the same time, I'm trying hard not to remember it as the Last Supper. So she desperately wants to hold on to details. I just got hungry again. I know it. You know, going, I'm hungry right now fantastic. thinking about it. There's that frame. It was the Last Supper we ever had together. That just opens up chapters of new possibilities for stories. You know, why, what happened. That's a wonderful ambiguity. Is the memory similar every Friday, or is this particular meal the one that she remembers? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Or has this become a stand-in 
for a happy time in childhood. Right, because without that last line, it's just a wonderful, delicious, fantastic smelling and looking and tasting reverie down memory lane. That's and right. And then that last line just, it just like switches it from color to sepia, and it's a shock. It just opens up so many questions, but that would be a reason not to remember it. It can't be saved that easily, apparently, for this speaker. They're going, they're going to remember it, even though the last thing they're going to do is try to forget it. Yeah, and I, I think that this is one of the striking things about losing your parents, is that you have these vivid memories of them, and you love or not love. I mean, sometimes these are not great memories, but, but they're vivid, and they stand for something important. So while you're experiencing that in the memory, but then you feel the loss of them all over again. Mm-hmm. Well, you said the word layer, and I, I really felt that in Julie's poem, that this memory, because it happened many Fridays, if not all Fridays, is a layered memory. And it's like brick by brick by brick, the memory became bigger and more iconic. And the poem captures that. But that's how memory works. I mean, the, many of the memories you have of those who are no longer with us are those kinds of layered memories, you know, like, well, Grandma always said this in a traffic jam or, you know, <laughs> so, so sort of the, the memories get built by repetition. But then there are other memories that happened only once, but they were momentous and they stick. Thank you to Julie for this terrific poem. Well, as we talk about memory, we tend to parse out that it is to a degree in our control, and we can boss it around and make it do what we want it to do for the most part. But we have had to acknowledge, and as both of the poets have pointed out, and your story does as well, that memory is fickle and also unpredictable, and it uh, can take on a significance that's rather abrupt and troubling. And so that's part of the story that's woven into our second song this time by T-Bone Kelly, also known as Dr. James T. Kelly, clinical psychologist. The name of the song is The Wounded. T-Bone had this to say about the origins of this song. He said, It was my privilege to serve on three U.S. warships that conducted searches for Vietnamese boat people. I was fortunate never to have seen combat, he said. Some of my shipmates had... During Liberty, a comrade named Red was guiding the newbies through an acid trip when he had a psychotic break, a full Vietnam flashback. And I met other wounded, but not quite as bad as Red. Flash forward 40 years, I meet the warrior poet Dermot O'Neill in Ireland, whose poem The Wound speaks of inner wounds, and that made me think of Red in Vietnam. So that's what motivated T-Bone to write the song. sailor, if a lucky man I'm not, the mild man, the worst thing out at sea I ever got, I feel day the bilges for punishment I rot, but hell to pay was something other sailors daily fought, their stories never ended after they began. Fear and sadness in my heart is kind of man. Oh, warrior, now a sailor from fire to the pan. 
And I was just a Navy cook in the sea of Vietnam The wound I carry marks me from every battlefield My feet no longer nimble, incapable of speed I watch my fellow warriors go off and fight and die I watch them from the hillside and there alone I cry I feel that I sometimes am not a man who stand his ground There's wounds crept inside my thought where all demons abound And now what made would choose me see beyond my scars I must be all alone now, cause that's the way things are. We had a hero, Happy Red, older than us all. A party hardy ex-marine who'd seen his brothers fall. He was just our age now when he got to Domain, but left there with his soul in shreds, never was the same. A ship's cook gets to know a lot about a man. My galley was a sanctuary where so many ran. We searched the sea for refugees who left without a plan. But I knew them and happy left a darker Vietnam I was a frightened sailor when he first lost the plot He had been our native guide for the blotter we had bought Everyone was happy, happy Red was not He was back in Vietnam while we expanded thought Tears are bound to privacy, howling screams are not The lottery that chosen ensured I wasn't caught I never saw that jungle that wounded such a man I was a non-combatant in the sea of Vietnam Wow. Many times when people discuss the Vietnam War, that's how it's referred to, that it wounded our national consciousness, that war. It, it split us up. It set our society asunder. So it's really a double meaning of the wounded, the personal wound, and the war itself, mm-hmm. that particular war. And even though it was peacetime, uh, as Jim says, it's a relative term, right? He said in times yeah. of peace, uh, there's a certain guilt. It's too strong a word. But he often felt like a non-combatant. Now, it hadn't even been 10 years you know, since Vietnam, the Vietnam conflict ended. So relative to some of the stories I heard from soldiers, he said, like Red, especially in those early days, you know, he had this strange feeling that he really was not in it. And he said, I did mm-hmm. eight years in what he called a peaceful bubble. 
that regrettably wasn't to last much longer. Mm. I think another remarkable thing about this, and I'm, I haven't asked him exactly how this worked out, but we look at his allusion to his galley where he was a, you know, a mere ship's cook, right? Probably one of the most important people on board. And, right. uh, and that the galley was a refuge for people to come and to talk to him and to go through and work through and endure these memories that they had. Right. I really appreciate that they were in the galley because that's a place of comfort on a ship because you get fed there, you're with others, you get to talk, it's kind of warm, and so you feel maybe safe enough to talk. Mm -hmm. Well, what else is it that drives us into our next chapter professionally except some kind of memory of a goal we set for ourselves or a set of experiences that said, hey, you're good at this. That's right. So it's so interesting that he's a clinical psychologist. Yeah. Yeah. He, He was already in training, you might say, floating around in the Sea of Vietnam. There's such a long history of novels and films about war. I'm just reminded as you're talking of the Pat Barker trilogy about World War One, and the first book is about shell shock and the early psychiatric treatments for shell shock because they didn't really know what they were dealing with. So there were many advances in psychiatry that came out of the Great War. A hell of a way to make progress. Yeah. Well, I appreciate him opening up the poem by Dermot O'Neill in the second verse. Dermot O'Neill is a very interesting character, and you can find him on YouTube if you search the warrior poet Dermot O'Neill. Hmm. Yeah. But another nice feature of this song, because after all, it's not just a poem. It's a great poem, but it's uh, how he manages to give us the waves. He does that with some really interesting phrasing and, and playing very loose with tempo a time or two. He gave us the waves as they sound and feel on the ship. Or at least in his memory of how they sounded and felt right. on the ship. Here we are again. This poem and song, it seems to be both, memorializes these people's stories. Yes, and it swells uh, musically and lyrically in and out of these tales. Uh, all of that wrapped up together in this, this vessel rocking on the swell. There's a lot happening in the song. And all the things that made up the wound and then the rocking on the water is perhaps the most soothing part of this event. Yes, and then and those layers, it would be nice to be able to treat them separately, but it's almost impossible to do so because the strange feature of memory I've been noticing, and maybe it's just my screwed up head, is that as soon as I lock onto a memory of A, all the other letters of the alphabet crowd in too in related memories, and some of them are several degrees away, and some of them are adjacent, but there they are. They sort of crowd around like kids playing soccer, and they, cr- they crowd yes. around the memory that you're trying to hold in the middle as the focus. One sense memory brings up other sense memories and other senses, so that sometimes a memory can create a cacophony mm-hmm. of sense and feeling. And it's no wonder that it overwhelms people. Even uh, in daily life would be bad enough with just, you know, the rigors of, of surviving in, you know, civilization. But in war and other calamity, it's just, it's a real feat to hold all that at bay and to be able to manage it. They were lucky to have Jim uh, or Dr. James T. Kelly as the cook. And yes. uh, we're lucky to have him as the songwriter. So thank you very much, T-Bone. Yeah, thank you, T-Bone.
Well, this brings us into the next thing we're going to look at, John. Yes. And as we talked about the pieces when we were selecting them this time, youth and age kept coming up because, of course, older people remember memories of youth. And those two things are really linked. So that's going to be our next theme for next time, youth and age. What's that quote from It's a Wonderful Life? Youth <laughs> wasted on the wrong people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I always say that, you know, the young deserve their youth because it's all that they have. Oh, and I suppose what got us thinking about it above all is that how important memory becomes uh, when you have a bunch of them. And then also when they start to slip away, they become even more precious. That's right. So this will be fun to explore next time. Also, if you're into exploring, you may go to our website, theunrulymuse.net, and check out the older podcasts or this current podcast. Leave a message for us. We always appreciate that. Yes, and there are the show notes, which give due credit to all the wonderful people who participated. And there was one other thing I wanted to say about that. Some wonderful reviews from people who have listened over the years, and we really appreciate those. And if you're new to the podcast and you want to know, am I doing the right thing? Go ahead and read those reviews, and I think you'll say yes. Yes, this is a good use of my time and my ears. This has been The Unruly Muse. I'm John Modaff. And I'm Lynn Miller. <laughs>